This is episode number 371 with Peter Crone. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? Peter is known as the Mind Architect. He is a pioneer and thought leader of human awakening and potential, sought after by the highest performers in entertainment, sports, and business. He shares his insights and distinctions to transcend traditional patterns of thinking that are currently creating our experience of constraints, suffering, and disease. In a truly revolutionary way, he introduces clients and followers to the world of freedom and love that awaits all of us on the other side of our perceived limitations. And in this inspiring conversation, we chat about how he became the mind architect and the story behind his spiritual awakening, how a broken heart can lead to massive awakening and unlocking your full potential, the secrets to staying calm and how to find comfort in uncertainty, how to bust through our limiting beliefs, the secret source that makes a great leader, why we always need to think twice before giving unsolicited advice, the current not-enoughness epidemic that rules people's lives and how to overcome it, why meditation is the ultimate tool to achieving our goals and true freedom, plus so much more. And for everything that we mention in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. That's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 371. And now let's get this party started. Let's bring on the incredible Peter Crone. Peter, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Before we dive in, can you tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? I can. That's a beautiful question and a nice way to start. This morning for breakfast, I had a couple of plums fresh from the farmer's market. And then I actually went to a local store that I frequent way more than I should. But I got a bit of paleo toast with some fresh bananas, blueberries. I think it's got a little layer of almond butter on it. And then a smoothie called a mucker bomb, which is not surprisingly got mucca in it and dates and coconut milk and all sorts. Delicious. Yeah, Delicious. that was on the back of a big workout with a couple of buddies where we did Sabata training. I don't know if you're familiar with that, 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. So that right. I've got a whole gym set up here. So that was quite fun. So that oh, was my start today. What did you have for breakfast? I've just finished breakfast and I had some oats and wild organic blueberries and some flax and chia seeds and protein. It was amazing. See, the way you deliver that, it's so sexier (laughs) than the way I did. It's like blueberry, wild blueberries. It's like, I'm just like, yeah, I had a macabomb smoothie. Uh, But yours definitely sounded delicious. It really did. No, it's pretty yummy. It's one of my defaults. (laughs) Beautiful. Well, 
like I said, I'm so excited to have you here. You have been called the mind architect, which I love. Can you tell us your story? Like, how did you get here? How did you get that title? Can you take us back and tell us a little bit about your journey and how this all came about for you? For sure. I mean, it depends how far back you want to go. But I mean, I grew up in England, orphaned by 17. Both parents passed. And so that was certainly pivotal in my own evolution as a human being. At that point, I had no idea that I would become known as the mind architect, obviously. But it was a natural progression where I was just constantly fascinated with self-awakening, self-development, self-improvement. Through college, I was always the guy my buddies would come to about their girlfriend problems. So I was a good listener. And just by virtue of being orphaned, I was very sensitive to my surroundings initially because I was trying to survive. So, you know, I became very vigilant. I became very aware. But then it sort of became a natural gift for me to actually pay really profound attention to people and certainly in the way they speak. And one thing led to the next where I started doing a little bit of coaching. Uh, I was actually a trainer originally back here in LA when I first came to the States for five years, traveled around the world. That's when I was living in Sydney, Australia for two years. We were shooting some big movies down there. So that was my introduction to your beautiful country. Then it sort of transformed into more mind training. And I uh, got a lot of athletes who reached out. I started to have incredible success with a couple of golfers, then a couple of baseball players. And before you knew it, everyone under the sun was wanting to work with me because obviously who doesn't want to get better results? Certainly when you're being paid millions of dollars as an athlete. So to come back to the question, the title Mind Architect was sort of born of necessity because I was called the happiness guru. I was called a spiritual teacher. But certainly things like spiritual teacher, they're already contaminated, right? Certain monikers already have a certain degree of interpretation that people assume. So I wanted to create something that was unique that would actually warrant engaging and it would inspire curiosity. So when I say I'm the mind architect, naturally the human brain, because it's not a common use of words, you know, it inspires questions. So people would say, oh, wow, that's cool. What's that? So then it gives me the forum to be able to explain in a little greater depth versus just being pigeonholed as like, oh, that guy's a spiritual teacher. Like somebody knows who I am. So the mind architect thing, that was born a long time ago. I actually did a little TV show here in the States and they called me a mind architect for that, you know, for that show. But then um, the title really stuck in the last sort of four or five years or so. Um, and certainly through joining Instagram a couple of years ago and now a lot of podcasts like yours that I've been on and it seems to be working. <laughs> mm -hmm. So losing your parents at 17 years old must have been really huge for you. And you said you were interested in the mind and spiritual awakening, but was that something that they instilled in you or did you just wake up one day and you were like, I'm interested in this? Like, What was your introduction to awakening? Good question. It started really in college when I was 18. So not, no, no, it wasn't anything really my parents did. My mum died when I was seven. So she really didn't get the opportunity to, to instill too much aside from I know she loved and adored me, you know, but there was certainly no like real prerequisites to spiritual awakening by virtue of my mum sharing anything. I was a seven-year-old who just wanted to go outside and play footy, you know. <laughs> so with my dad, he was a very loving man too, but he, I wouldn't say he was in the traditional sense like spiritual or like a tree hugger or anything. He was just a loving man. He was an engineer. We lived a simple, you know, life. It's sort of um, we weren't struggling, but we certainly weren't wealthy. 
So really, where my conversations around consciousness, spirituality, and who we are beyond our personas uh, started in college when I was probably, I'd say, 19. And I would sit under a tree with a friend of mine uh, called Guy. And Guy was like more your traditional kind of hippie who I'm still in touch with after all these years. But we would ask those big questions of like, you know, what's the meaning of life? Who are we? Why are we here? Blah, blah, blah. And so that's where we would actually sit and discourse, the two of us, we would write. He would lead little workshops at college, which were really beautiful. And so that was sort of probably my introduction to even the conversation about spirituality and consciousness. The pivotal moments in my life came a little bit later, certainly when I was around 29, 30, when a girlfriend I'd been dating who I was in love with left me, as often the case, the heartbreak was the heart open in my case. So that was, that was my... If there were a defining moment in the sort of pivot of my life, it was that. Wow. What did you learn during that heart-breaking, heart-opening experience? That I didn't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> and that was so liberating to not try and figure life out. I actually met her in Sydney when I was there working with these two VIPs, helping them on a couple of films. It was one of those distinct moments across a crowded room, you know, very Hollywood. And like, there's this sort of knowing that there's a connection. And I didn't even know who she was in terms of the details of her life, but there was an energetic bond that got formed. But I didn't know her. So I didn't know how I was going to actually manufacture, like getting to see her again. And then life just as it does sort of saw fit to divinely create in the next two or three days, this luncheon where she was there, I was there with a mutual friend. And we got to sort of declare to each other as the other friend left the table, it was just me and this one girl. And at that moment, I just verbatim, I said to her, was there a moment at the other night that you particularly rem remember? Because I didn't want to be presumptuous, but for me, it was so profound. I, there was a, you know, the assumption that she must have felt something, but I didn't want to be you know, that confident. So I just said, was there anything you remembered? And her words verbatim were, I just wanted you to pick me up and take me away. Hmm. So that was one of those hopelessly romantic <laughs> moments so for those who love love you know hopefully they get something out of that but um so that led you know to this sort of beautiful journey we were in australia together we went back to la we moved to madrid for a minute because i was also filming there with clients so we were sort of all over and then when she left what it brought to the surface my epiphany was the deep-seated fear of loss which obviously had got established when my parents died so what I was unaware of, and this is how most people live their lives, they're oblivious to these subconscious patterns and fears, is that I was so scared of losing anything of value by virtue of the fact that I'd been previously hurt by that, right? The loss of value, the quintessential value of my care providers, my parents. So I had superimposed that same sort of pressure on her. It didn't show up in our relationship. I was just a very loving, carefree guy, just like I am. But the energy was like, don't leave me, don't leave me, don't leave me, right? Not expressed, but that was my fear. So, of course, life set me up for success, took her away. I had to face the demons of my fear. And to, you know, come full circle to your question, there was a moment about eight weeks after she'd left me. We spoke for the first couple of weeks, and I was just desperately hoping to hear she's coming back. Didn't hear anything for about six weeks. And I'm sitting in my little rent control apartment in Santa Monica, and I had all of these questions incessantly going around in my head that was just exhausting. Like, will I see her again? Where is she? Will I meet anyone else like that? Is she dating anyone? You know, and what I realized in one profound moment is I got the answer to all of the questions simultaneously, which was, I don't know. And at that moment, I realized I'd never known. 
And in fact, the very nature of life itself is not knowing. And then by virtue of being human and wanting to survive, we're trying to figure it out. And so for the first time, I got the fabric of life and I found complete peace with not knowing. The really profound part of that is not only how liberating that was, I completely emancipated myself from any sense of fear or need to survive. But within 15 minutes of me having that realization, she called, my phone called. I didn't even, I don't think I even had a cell phone back then, but my landline called and it was her. Hadn't spoken to her for six weeks. She'd made her way all the way to New Zealand. She couldn't physically be further. It was the antipode of like LA. And now she's crying saying she misses me so much. Wow. So that to me spoke to quantum physics, entanglement theory. The fact that I'd suddenly released the barricade that I was stuck in based on fear of loss. I was actually now fully available. She loved me. There was no doubt about it. And I loved her. But I wasn't fully available because I was too busy trying to preserve myself unconsciously. So no judgment. This is why relationships don't work, right? Because people are stuck within their own subconscious cages, just trying to be who they, you know, they feel they need to be in order to elicit love and acceptance or avoid pain. So at that moment, it was just so profound. But I was just completely a different human being, you know? Wow. So she came back for a minute. It was lovely, but you know the relationship had served its purpose. We're still in touch, which is beautiful. She's now married, lives in Florida, and life is uh, life is good. So that was that was quite that was quite profound for me. Especially with what is going on in the world right now, so many people are wanting that certainty and wanting to know what's next and to control the outcome in every area of our life and what your realization was as, I don't know. So how can we be comfortable in the not knowing so that we can live our life in the moment, present, and just be here? Because it's often that panic and that stress and that overwhelm of the not knowing that pulls us out of the present moment. So how can we let go of that and trust and come back to the moment? That's a great question. And I would say it's not so much that people want to know what's going to happen. That's the symptom. That's the illusion. That's how it presents, right? What people want to, what people actually want is security, reassurance. They want to feel safe. So, and my work is unique in as much as it's sometimes counterintuitive because what you just said is how do we let go of that? For me, the way we let go of that is actually to embrace it. So it's sort of kind of a little bit the opposite. So it's not so much about letting go, but recognizing your humanity by design is self-preserving. And so if we can actually embody the part of us that is scared, that is looking for reassurance, that's constantly trying to figure things out, no different than a mother would hold a baby who's scared or a child who's got antrepidation about the future, the parent would embrace the child. They don't let the child go because they're worried. Uh, at least I hope they don't. <laughs> Some people do, but you know that's a topic for another conversation. But you know, a loving parent would embrace the child who's feeling the concern, the worry, and the anxiety. So likewise with ourselves, there's that part of us that feels inadequate, that feels insecure. So what I teach people is actually the embrace and the inclusion of that part of us as a reflection of our humanity. How do you teach people to do that? So do you have any part of your body as a beautiful woman that you would look at and go, well, it's not perfect, whether it's the scar or it's a dimple or it's something that you don't like about yourself? Is there one part where you could, you know, from women who struggle with a little bit of a muffin top to a little bit of cellulite, they don't like their hairline, 
I mean, we're all human. There's things that we don't necessarily go, oh, wow, that's my greatest feature, right? So do you have anything? Maybe you don't. Maybe you're flawless. <laughs> no, so one thing did pop into my mind. It's just something that I'm like, oh, that could be improved. Yeah, great. So how did you integrate that part of you? By accepting. There you go. Answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> easy, easy. And you know what? It really is quite simple. And you were sharing before that you were a personal trainer and that was the entry into the work that you now do. I was kind of similar. So I studied holistic nutrition. So I was helping people with nutrition. I was looking at that. That's what I kind of looked at first. And so I was helping people get healthy and well again through their nutrition, you through personal training. And then what I realized is that it doesn't matter what you're doing here or how many bicep curls you're doing or what you're putting in your mouth. If you've still got this really loud inner critic, or I call it my inner mean girl, if you've got this really loud inner critic that's saying you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, smart enough, strong enough, who do you think you are? My whole first book is called Mastering Your Mean Girl, and I did a TED Talk on it, and I created this four-step cast process to help people cast aside their inner critics so that their true self can shine through. But I want to hear, what is your process to help people bust through those limiting beliefs, those limiting fear-based beliefs that we have in our heads sometimes? How do you help people rewire their brain so that those limiting beliefs aren't the default? What's your process and what do you teach people? So I'd say it's kind of the opposite. So I teach love, you know. So what does CAST an acronym? Yes. What does that stand for? So the first one is character. So I get you to create a character for your little inner critic. And this is to make it fun and playful. And then the second, the A stands for awareness. We've got to become aware of what is going on in the head, what they're actually saying. You know, for some people, it might be around relationships. For some people, it might be around their body or their skills. And then the S stands for we shut the door on that inner critic that's going to come knocking on your door. And I get people to visualize it like an annoying salesperson who comes knocking on your door. And you just say, I'm not interested today in that thought or that belief or that story. And then the fourth one, T, stands for truth. Come back to the truth of who you are, which is love. Right, right, right. Gotcha. Cool. So <laughs> you might then not like what I'm about to say based on <laughs> what you've created. <laughs> so I like the idea of like the character and obviously awareness is pivotal. The only difference I'd say is like, I don't shut the door. I actually invite them in. And that's the embrace because that is love. Otherwise, so similar to what you were saying about the part of you that, okay, it's not such a big issue. It's not your favorite part of you, whatever it is, your physical quality, characteristic. But it's also like not something that really bugs you. So you bring awareness to it. But you're also, to me, what you said in response to my question is, how did you learn to like integrate that? You said, well, I accepted it. So that's where I would just say my process is a little different, or you could say a lot different, but it's, it's like embracing. That's our humanity. I've never met anybody who doesn't have some sort of insecurity, inadequacy, some sort of narrative or dialogue that is in its own way self-judging. And so 
people have all sorts of different methods. People try to get rid of the ego or they want to kill the ego or let go of the ego. And for me, it's like, it's just, it's part of your humanity. You know, it's not something necessarily that needs to be let go of because to me, it's just the voice of somebody who's actually asking to be heard. Mm. I say the same thing with, there's a lot of texts that talk about killing the ego and smashing the ego and slaying the ego. And I'm the same as you. I say, no, it's about having that awareness and then just gently saying, thank you, but no, thank you. I'm not interested in that story today. But I love how you accept it. But some people can't get to that place straight away. And so that's why I like the visual for them to just go, thank you, but no, thank you. I'm closing that door and I'm going to come back to my truth. So you mentioned judging, and this is a big topic. I feel like some people and a lot of women I work with, they are so judgmental of themselves and of other people. How do you help people move through that self-judgment? By the same token of recognizing that's just part of their humanity, it's default programming, it's just conditioning. And there's going to be certain moments in their childhood where this narrative, these conversations, these dialogues got initiated because sister got a little more attention, brother was smarter, brother was a better athlete, you know, mom didn't seem to give me that much attention, dad was always at work. Whatever it is that people experience that then was just purely the catalyst to turn on this sort of identity about oneself, where, as you said, I'm not enough. Let's just take that as a form of self-judgment, which is obviously very commonplace. So for people to be able to recognize, oh, wow, you know, that's not who I am, but rather that's a conversation I have about myself, which is itself inaccurate. So I, again, bring awareness. It's okay. Everybody's got their own sort of inner critic, to use your term, and to recognize the falsehood of that conversation. Allow its presence, but recognize the pretense. It's not a truth about who you are. So judgment as an energy is it belongs to that aspect of ourselves that by design is sort of self-derogatory. And so once you incorporate that as just part of who I am, then to me, the judgment just falls away because, oh, that's just an aspect of me. It's not who I am. And so that's that distinction, which is subtle, but immensely profound to recognize, okay, well, my humanity, which is founded in these beliefs of inadequacy, is part of me, but it's not all of me. Exactly. So the judgment, that's fine. I could, I even in my mind, I've done this for three decades. I can still hear occasionally like judgments. It's not so much of myself, maybe. You know, if I play, I love to play sports and if I'm not playing my tennis so well, or it's like I could hear the voice, but that doesn't actually do anything for reality other than probably cascade into a few moments where I'm not actually performing as well because I'm too busy berating myself, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, it's so short-lived. It's just a conversation. It's nothing that I give any more energy than somebody who might on the street just do something dumb. You know, it's like, what do I care? It's like, it's just in the nature of life. I've become so big in my bandwidth that I make space for even the own conversations that I can have within my own skull. I go, oh, it's okay. It's just, you know, it's cute. Like feeling bad about yourself. It's okay. Now, what do you want to focus on? <laughs> yeah. And it's about that choice choosing something more inspiring or something that excites you. And I find often that is a really challenging step for people, especially if there's been a lot of fear, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain to then move through to that. Some people say to me, it doesn't feel as easy as just like clicking your fingers, but really 
it is a choice. Yeah, it is and it isn't, right? So you've got literal choice and figurative choice because, you know, people talk about choice, but they don't necessarily understand what the word means. So people are making choices within the limits of their conditioning. I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner, part of my work. Now, before I was like studying and getting the information about Ayurveda, I didn't have a choice about how to integrate that into my life if I had an imbalance because I was oblivious to it, right? To have that understanding, my work is about reframing things like that, right? Like it's to allow whatever is there to be there, but not to actually allow it to define you, right? And that's a distinction. It, it's having, it isn't simple. Well, I say it's simple. It's not easy, right? To the point yeah. where people say, well, it's not just like this. You know, you can't just make a choice. You know, well, you can't. You can only make choices within the limits of your current awareness. So like my Ayurveda, now I know how to use certain herbs and spices, diet, lifestyle to offset maybe a physiological imbalance I've had if I've been traveling, working hard or not sleeping. Whereas before, my choices were limited to maybe some Western allopathic BS, you know, like go to whatever your local pharmacy and get some junk drugs or, uh, you know, over-the-counter stuff. So now I have more choice because I have more awareness. So the people who are struggling with self-judgment, anxiety, depression, addiction, I bring compassion to them because if they did know what was better in terms of a choice, then they wouldn't be in that place of suffering. So everybody's doing the best they can within the realm of what they're aware of. So that's where I think a lot of coaches, teachers, specialists don't quite have sufficient patience and compassion, I feel, for understanding that people's conditioning is their conditioning. And you might not agree with their choices, but you have a different perspective. And I think anybody who's got a more advanced, more expanded view on life it's sort of incumbent upon you to be a source of inspiration and empathy for people versus a form of superiority or judgment. And so I come from this place of real patience with people that they don't want to suffer. They just don't know any other way. So yes, they have choice, but their choices, maybe they get to choose out of 10 options. And I could have a choice of say a hundred options. So if I can introduce them to five or six that they're oblivious to, that's the reframe. That's where they're like, oh my God, I never looked at it like that. So it is a nice distinction choice, but I think it's also, it's a double-edged sword and we've got to be a little bit delicate, I think, because a kid down the street who's breaking a car window right now to steal someone's bag and purse, people say, well, he has a choice. He shouldn't be doing that. If you walked every step of that kid's life from the absence of a father because he was in jail and a mom who was a crack addict and his only sense of belonging was a gang and to be part of the gang, he had these initiations where he had to contribute and steal. You know, and that's what he's been taught. He was a baby at one point without all of that conditioning. He's not a bad person. He's just trying to survive. No different than a big executive right now at a corporate office who is pilfering cash or making sort of deals that he knows are to the detriment of his shareholders, but he's going to fill his pockets. You could say that's bad. It is. I wouldn't, I wouldn't condone it, but he's obviously doing it from a place of fear. Otherwise, he would be transparent and he would trust in the universe is abundant and he wouldn't have to lie. So everybody's doing these things from the major to the minor within the realm of their current awareness and more importantly, within the realm of their understanding that we're supported by life. You don't have to lie. You don't have to cheat. You don't have to bring harm to anybody else. 
And we're seeing this right now in the world, as far as I'm concerned, with these bigger agendas that are at play with control and oppression and tyranny. That's an old mindset that's based purely in fear and survival. And that's what I'm breaking for people. Mm, Beautiful. It's so important that we remember that, that we remember everyone is doing the best that they can with their level of awareness. And you're right, if they knew better, they would probably do better. And that compassion and empathy and kindness is so important to ourselves and to others. And I remember when I first started on this journey, I really wanted my parents to get on board and my siblings, and I wanted to preach everything that I was learning and remembering from the rooftop. And it was causing a lot of friction in our relationship. And they were on their own journey and everyone is on their own journey. And I think what makes a really great teacher and a great leader is what you said, that that empathy, that compassion and that kindness and not rolling your eyes at where someone is at, but instead offering them one, two, three or four or five alternatives that they may never have realized were even possible before. That's our job. That's what we're here to do. It's certainly my passion and my purpose is to help people look through new eyes. But again, even that I only do when people ask. You know, I think there's a lot of superimposition that gets met with a lot of defense because unless somebody's actually asking for a contribution, then it's going to come across as quite often a form of judgment that you're telling people like there's something wrong with them, but that you know better. I mean, the audacity of that mindset to me is quite unattractive. (laughs) And I could certainly, you know, just by virtue of my deep sense of awareness and observation, I could point out things, but it would be like running into your house right now and starting to move the furniture around. You'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) Just because I might have a better sense of interior design, you don't want me to do that. But if you were to invite me over and say, oh my God, I love your taste. Would you give me some ideas? Now you're opening the door, you're inviting me into your space and affording me the opportunity to contribute some different perspectives. So that's how I work. I allow people to invite me in. And so far, it seems like a lot of people are inviting me in. So I got a, got a lot of homes to visit. Beautiful. In the Vedic community, we say, wait for the worthy inquiry. And that's, again, another aspect of a great teacher and a great leader is to wait for that worthy inquiry, not force it down people's throats and want them to try meditation or whatever it is. It's waiting for that. And for me, over my journey is definitely something that I have really tried to embody more of, especially at the start, you want to share everything and you get so excited and you're like, you know, did you know this? And you've just got to wait for that inquiry because that is a great visual of when someone isn't wanting your advice or wanting your opinion, it is like someone coming in and rearranging your furniture. You'd be like, what are you doing? So I want everyone to really take that on board. Everyone has an opinion about everything and everyone wants to give their opinion about everything. But unless it's asked, like zip your lips. No one's asking, wait for that worthy inquiry and then go from there. Now with my family, If they come to me and say, I would love your business advice or your meditation advice or your nutrition advice, I'm like, cool, let's go. I don't force it down their throat like I used to when I first got started. And it's so much better for the relationship. 
Yeah, because that relationship then starts to become a relationship, right? Otherwise, it's a form of domination. It's not a relationship, right? It's a form of imposition, demands that you're putting on somebody. That's not a relationship. It's got nothing to do with love. And again, this is why relationships are often one of the main topics that I help people with is because they recognize, wow, I'm not actually in a relationship with that person. I'm in a relationship with my idea of them. And then I'm trying to improve the idea of them. Right. So it's, it's very subtle, but it's very profound. So what you just described in terms of your own evolution, which is beautiful, that you recognize and you can admit that you're trying to force people to do things or force your ideas on somebody, that's dictatorship versus you letting them come to you when they're ready and accepting them for who they are. That's love and acceptance. And if people just get that distinction alone, it will completely transform their relationships, whether they be professional, personal or romantic. It is the reflection of love that allows me to be who I am, but simultaneously extend that to somebody else and allow them to be who they are and where they are, knowing that we're all dynamic works in progress. So just because someone's doing something today that you don't necessarily concur with, agree, or like, it is nonetheless who they are today. And so to give them space to maybe evolve into something else or someone else that perhaps would be more favorable to you, but without you having to in any way make demands on them. So you can be committed to someone's evolution without actually making them wrong for where they are. Mm, beautiful. It's key. It's key if you want your relationships to work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you want to have a lot of hostility, fights, traumas, and divorces, keep doing what you do. <laughs> exactly. Just popping in to tell you about Organifi, an all-natural, organic, vegan, super delicious superfood blend that I'm obsessed with. As you know, I'm a serious health nut and health is one of my top priorities and core values and something I don't skimp on. This is why I make sure to have my Organifi green juice daily. We all need more greens in our life and starting your day with these alkalizing, nourishing greens is a great way to make sure you're getting more. But they don't just do greens. They also have a red juice, gold mushroom blends, clean protein powders, probiotic blends, and so much more. And you can get 15% off everything store-wide at Organifi.com forward slash Melissa. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash Melissa. And all you have to do is type Melissa at the checkout to get 15% off everything in your cart. How epic is that? What is one of the most common things that you help people with? What do you see? Is there a reoccurring theme or pattern that you see with all of the people you work with, the celebrities, the athletes, everyone? Yeah. I mean, it's all in this wheelhouse of inadequacies, insecurities, you know, and they manifest in different ways. I might be working with so stereotypical, but an entertainer who's got an addiction problem. I might be working with an athlete who's got a failure problem, you know, or an insecurity problem. I might be working with somebody who feels inadequate as it relates to the workplace or their family. So the buckets are pretty similar for humans. It just manifests, presents in different ways. So not enoughness is sort of an epidemic. And then we compensate for that in different ways. There are certain adaptations that people use, right? Perfectionism, which I'm going to make an assumption you're familiar with. The people-pleasing that so many people lean on as a way of trying to get love and acceptance. So that they're all sort of offshoots of the feeling that who I am somehow 
is just not enough. And once you can transcend that and see that for the falsehood that it is, then that's freedom and peace, which are my products. So that's definitely a common theme with everybody is that people talk about self-love and it's, it's, it's lovely. You know, I'm not poo-pooing it and you can buy a Hallmark card for somebody and, you know, or there's lots of Instagram accounts, which are telling people to love yourself. And, but to me, it's a little bit of a disservice because until such time you recognize one, what is love? Two, who am I that I'm not loving myself? And then three, who am I beyond that? You know, there are many facets to it. So it really is about, as I said, embracing all parts of who I am, even the part of me that doesn't like myself. Exactly. That's the common theme. Mm, yeah. How does meditation play into your work and your personal life? I would say it plays in a variety of different ways. For some people, it doesn't play in at all. I meditate periodically. I think presence is meditation. If you're using meditation as a practice, that's great. I would just like to get people to a place where meditation is a way of being versus a 10, 20 minute window in an otherwise pretty hectic, dramatic and emotional day. So for me, it's become more a way of being and how I live. And I sort of inspire and instill the same in my clients that I work with. But for some people, they certainly need to start with a practice to even get some semblance of what it means to be out of their chatterbox mind with all of the concerns and fears and apprehensions where they're trying to figure everything out and they just got this rumination over and over and over. It's like, okay, if they learn the practice of meditation, they can start to get this glimpse of what it means to be just still and at peace. So I think it's, it's like a lot of people now are doing plant medicines, you know, it's sort of become very on vogue and people are doing the ayahuascas and the combos and, you know, whatever it is, DMTs and psilocybins. And I, I don't know, it's not my world, but it gives people a glimpse of something that they were previously oblivious to, which can then become aspirational, right? Like you, it's just somebody watching one of my clients who's an incredible athlete. Maybe like I was with a client's kid yesterday, he's 16, you know, 15, he's a young golfer. So he's aspirational in the way that he looks at these professional golfers as that is something he wants to step into. And so it gives him dedication, commitment to his craft, to work on his putting, to go to the range. So I think when we have these experiences, either through meditation or some kind of, you know, if it's a psychedelic experience, or it can be just, you know, you're looking out at a beautiful sunset and somehow you just get this feeling of inspiration. It can be aspirational from that position of like, oh, wow, there's a different way of living. There's a new possibility for me to step into. So that's where I think meditation plays a very pivotal part for people to just get a glimpse of what it means to be out of my monkey mind. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. There's no point in yeah, doing that 10 minutes in the morning. And then if you spend the rest of your day in your head, running around, overwhelmed, stressed, going at a million miles an hour, if you're not taking that eyes closed feeling into your eyes open feeling, you know, take what you feel there and embody that into your daily life. So I shouldn't be screaming at people on the uh, highway. What <laughs> <laughs> are you doing, you fucking idiot? <laughs> oh, gosh. I'd love to hear now, what is your definition of success and what do you attribute your own personal success to? I mean, I talk about this in different ways. So I don't know if I would just succinctly put it into a definition, but what success represents to me, if I were to use one word, I would say peace. Because I've got many clients who've got more money than time, you know, literally multi, multi billionaires, 
and I love them, but they still prior to working with me, of course, now that they have, you know, awakened and got the gift of freedom, which is my real product, you know, but prior to that, anxiety, depression, addiction, disharmony in their relationships, kids that don't like them or don't talk to them, whatever. So that they might look successful in the traditional sense, but what they're really craving to me is relief. Relief from the inner narrative that creates suffering. So success to me is the cessation or the end of suffering. Suffering distinct from pain. You know, if I get up after our talk and I walk across and stub my toe, there's going to be a sensation of pain. I might get a bellyache after certain food or, you know, that's unavoidable by virtue of us being these physical organisms. But suffering to me is a psychological distinction that we can transcend when we realize that everything is the way it is and that my resistance to that is going to create some sort of internal angst. So success is the absence of all of that noise, which I would also say is like, you know, being totally free. So that's my form of success. And how did I get to it? As I was sort of saying, through the events of my life that were at the time, difficult, but nonetheless were the catalyst for me to look at something in a different way, just as I do for other people, and realize that there was neither anything wrong with me nor anything wrong with my life, at which point I found total presence and harmony. That's not to say that there wasn't a subjective preference of how I wanted things to be, but I was no longer in juxtaposition or resistance to the way it was. And that's a very subtle but profound, again, shift in my relationship to reality so Mm. success is being at peace with everything i love that it's beautiful what are you working on or would like to improve within yourself at the moment hip rotation (laughs) (laughs) it's very specific (laughs) hamstring extension (laughs) i mean gosh, I feel very content with who I am. And then all the other things are sort of ancillary to that. So even though it's a joke, I'd love to be more mobile. I'm an athlete and I do very well at what I do, but I know my performance physically would be enhanced if I had greater mobility. I'm a guy. Most guys tend to be a little stiff. I'm not at the stiff range, but I'm certainly not at the handy bendy yogi range either. You know, so that's something I'm working on. I'm working on Business-wise, you know, we just launched my course again, which is awesome, called Free Your Mind. That's very exciting. I'm working on a community for next year for people to be a part of. I'm finishing my first book, which is very exciting. Yeah, and, and just always working on being a more loving, compassionate, and patient human being. I think I do pretty damn well at that. But, you know, I'm no Mahatma Gandhi just yet. You know, maybe close, a little younger. Maybe wear more clothes. I don't walk around in like a little, uh, what's it called? Shawl. (laughs) So yeah. And I let life guide me. You know what I mean? So rather than me thinking, what do I need to work on? Life will present you with what you need to work on. (laughs) There's a certain humility about the fact that I let life present me with what are my opportunities for growth that perhaps I was even oblivious to. So I've been dealt a pretty good hand thus far, for sure, a lot of trials and tribulations, but as it relates to my own karmic evolution, they've always been for my greater good. And for that reason, I have an immense amount of gratitude. So even when things come to me that are seemingly difficult or challenging, or maybe even stuff I don't want, I have a different relationship to now where it's like, okay, where can I 
embrace this as a recognition that I'm a beneficiary of these circumstances, not a victim of them. Yeah, there's always lessons and growth in those opportunities. I know they can feel really uncomfortable and stretching, but on the other side of them, there's growth, there's evolution. And that's what we're here for. We're here to grow and evolve and learn. That's why we're here on earth. And if we're not looking at those situations or circumstances through that perspective, then that's when I feel like we're kind of butting head with life. Oh, I thought I was on earth to eat as much mint chocolate chip ice cream as I could. <laughs> no, you just totally shattered my purpose. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. We're all a work in progress growing to a more expanded view of ourselves for sure. Absolutely. Let's pretend now that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Now, besides your upcoming book, which definitely should be in the curriculum, what is one book you would choose? Well, first of all, we don't have to pretend I have a magic wand. I clearly have a magic wand. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh, that's a good question because there's so many. And it's appropriate to, in Ayurveda, not dodging the question, but you know, someone says, well, what should I eat? Or what time should I And we always say, it depends. Because there's so many variables. So my favorite book is called I Am That. But it is a tome of content that I would not recommend for many people. I've mentioned it on a couple of podcasts prior to me actually mentioning it in a similar dialogue like this, where someone asked me about books. I probably referenced it to three or four people who I thought could actually read it, digest it, and get it. So do I think it should be part of the curriculum? Yes, because it's extraordinary. Do I think it would go over most people's heads? Absolutely. <laughs> so, so that's one. A very simple, let's put it, assuming we're putting it into schools, I would just say a very simple book that is profound is called The Four Agreements. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So, you know, if we were to start there, we can work our way up through, you know, the Peter Crone's sort of curriculums, and then we can get to the sort of more heady stuff. But four agreements is a nice little start. You know, it's like, oh, that's cute. But if you actually practice it, it's actually pretty profound. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll link to it in the show notes. It's such a great book. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about how your day looks now and walk us through a typical day in your life. Tell us your morning routine and how you set yourself up for a successful day. And Take us through a typical day in your life and all the rituals and habits you do. Okay. You really want a little expose of my minute-to-minute life. So I'm an early riser. I live a very kind of what I would consider traditional yogic life in that regard. I go to bed pretty early. I get up pretty early. What does that mean? I sometimes, not that I want to, wake up at three. So it's more like a monk. I don't want to wake up there. I normally typically get up around five. I really believe that it's the most austere time of the day, first thing in the morning. It's very still. The energy is very quiet and it allows for great reflection and introspection. So that's why I like that time of day. I've always been a morning person. And just for people who are feeling bad because maybe they sleep until nine and they're up until one at night, they don't have to go, oh my God, I got to be like that. You know, genetically now sleep specialists are showing that we do have a predisposition to either being more of an early riser or a night owl. So I think it's important people just intuitively feel into who you are. For me, I'm more a morning person. So first thing in the morning, I tend to, as an Ayurvedic practitioner, one of the first things I'll do is put some cold, cool water on my eyes to refresh them. 
tongue scrape. I'm sure you're familiar with tongue scraping. And then I usually will, right now I take some binding herbs because I'm just doing a bit of a cleanse. So I'm using a lot of chlorella and some clay, some charcoal, which I'll take with quite a lot of water that's often with some fresh lemon. So it's sort of like to reset and cleanse my internals. And then I usually start my day with a workout. So I might do a little bit of stretching on a foam roll or something just to warm up my body. And then I will go into my workout, which fortunately I'm blessed to have equipment here so I can do it at home. And then I will often after workout do infrared sauna. And then I will end on a cold plunge. So I do the alternate hot cold. Sometimes I throw in a hyperbaric chamber where we get fancy for the oxygen therapy. But that's usually how I start my day get up, a little bit of a cleanse in terms of external, internal, workout, detox, cold, shower, boxer shorts. I mean, how much detail do you want? Left sock, <laughs> right sock. <laughs> and then do you go into your work day from there? I do. It depends on the day. I mean, work is different for me. And as much as I'm not tied to a particular calendar and not a Monday to Friday guy, I have my schedule with clients on certain days, working on my other projects other days. So some days I go and play tennis instead of working out. So then that leads into a different array of events. Um, but yes, typically then by sort of eight, whenever I'm having some breakfast, breakfast, again, similar to what I told you this morning, will usually be comprised of something a little bit more sweet at the beginning of the day. So fruits, smoothies, stuff like that. I'm not so much a traditional eggs and bacon kind of guy. I do occasionally like that. And then yes, I'll get into the whole world of, okay, what communications have come in, emails, texts, DMs, sort of address some of that. And then depending on the day, if it's with clients, I'll have my routine of like, okay, I'll usually talk to two or three people in the morning, two or three people in the afternoon. If it's not, it's projects, I'll work with my team on whatever we're doing. Like, as I said, right now, obviously, there's a lot of focus on the, the course that we're promoting. The way my mind works is also going to throw in a little bit of a curveball periodically, which is I get inspired, I get insights, I get downloads, I get quotes, I get things I want to write. So sort of intermixed in my day, there's going to be a moment or two or seven where I suddenly get inspired by something that I have to capture. You know, and then obviously midday, I usually have lunch. And depending on the size of the lunch and the timing of the lunch, sometimes I don't have dinner. You know, people now are into intermittent fasting. They'll often do it the other way around where they'll skip breakfast in Ayurveda. We would actually say that's a bad idea. If you're going to skip any meal, it should be dinner. The sun's gone down. Your digestion is the weakest. So lunch is, you know, a little bit more hearty. I actually blessed I have somebody help usually bring a bit of food by. It's usually Ayurvedic vegan. I'm not labeling myself vegan, but I tend to eat as much plant-based food as I can. And then, yeah, the afternoon, you know, obviously got to throw in a little bit of fun there, here and there. Friends come over, watch a good movie, go out, you know, go watch a sunset, ride a bike, you know, all of that. I love hiking, especially around sunset. And then there's other Ayurvedic practices that I incorporate. So Abhyanga, are you familiar with Abhyanga? So yes. oil massage that I will do periodically. I try and do that three or four times a week. And, you know, I do blood work regularly, see what's going on in my chemistry to know what I need to do in terms of adjustments for food and maybe supplementation. Yeah, I'm basically a complete, like, you know, maniac as it relates to being healthy. <laughs> no, my husband and I do the same sort of things every day. So yeah, it's amazing. And it makes you feel good. And 
That's yeah, self care, and I also want to be a living example of you know, what people can aspire to. I don't want to be some guy who's espousing about mental freedom and then being like angry and pissed off or like depressed. And I don't want to be somebody talking about health and being out of shape and on five or six pharmaceutical products. So it's important to me, not just by virtue of the fact that I want people to be inspired, but that's just my commitment to my own self-worth and my own life, which is I'm the only me on this planet. I want to take care of it. So uh, that's fortunate. It's part of my makeup. I've just done that as long as I was a kid, you know, certainly through college, like I was an athlete. So, you know, if you're an athlete, you've got to take care of the base fundamentals if you're going to perform at any kind of level. So that's just become now just an inherent part of my life. I'm very disciplined that way. And of course, you've got to have fun. I mean, I go by an 80-20 rule. 80% of what I do and eat is immaculate and then 20 percent is the mint chalk chip ice creams and the whatever else i got a sweet tooth (laughs) (laughs) yeah and you got to do what feels good and true for you that's the most important thing don't follow what anyone else is doing don't compare yourself to anyone else do what feels right and good and true for you that is key Unless it's me, in which case you do have to follow what I do. <laughs> do what I say or else. <laughs> yes. Cancel. No, uh, absolutely. And this is where we all like inspire each other. You know, we look up to people who either are just geniuses or talented physically, or maybe people who've come through adversity. We all have our own crosses to bear. And I think stories of rags to riches or the phoenix rising from the flames, these are things that we can all go, wow, you know, if that person can go through the tough times that they've been through, then, you know, I can equally do the same. So I love the fact that my work is something that's inspiring people. I wake up every morning to just so many beautiful DMs of like, wow, I can't believe I'd never heard of you. Or I've been following you for two years and my life is completely different. Like to get that kind of reflection, it's very humbling, but also very gratifying and touching. So, mm, Beautiful. I have three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? Pressure. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. What is one thing that we can do today for our health? Breathe. Mm-hmm. Yes. Love it. What's No, but one... I really mean that, right? Like, so like it might seem like flippant, but breathing tends to happen unconsciously. So if we can bring a bit of awareness to the way we breathe, it is the precursor to so many of the other physiological functions in our body from our circulation to our neurology. Because if we are slowing down our breath, particularly exhaling purposely, then that is good for your health. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. What is one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Rob Banks. (laughs) (laughs) Did I say that out loud? Is that bad? I mean, it's going to work, right? (laughs) Yeah, just rock banks. (laughs) Okay, for the people who don't want to go to jail, it means you've got to be specific with your questions. Sorry, sorry about that. (laughs) To increase wealth, again, it's like success. It depends how you define wealth, right? To me, wealth is akin to self-worth, which is going to be akin to self-love. So if you want to increase your worth and hence your wealth, it's in self-nurturing. So how do we increase our wealth is by taking better care of yourself because what you're doing in that behavior is you're saying, I am worthy, I am precious. So even though it may not reflect immediately on your bank statement or when you go to the ATM, the energy is nonetheless the precursor to that showing up at some point. 
Mm, Absolutely. I love that. And final one, what is one thing that we can do for more love in our life? Ecstasy. (laughs) No one has ever given these sorts of answers. (laughs) Unique, baby. What what can I tell you? I'm the vine architect. I don't want to give you any stock BS. So I don't know. I've never done drugs, not one. I hear ecstasy does help in terms of love. How can we enhance love or increase love? Is that what you said? Yeah. How can we just get more love in our life? How can we... By giving more. Yeah. If you want to receive and be the beneficiary of love, then give it. Yeah. I love that. And that's not necessarily easy, but it is nonetheless the access to the reflection of getting it more, but simultaneously you're the beneficiary of it by virtue of the fact that you're expressing it. So as you express, so you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whenever I help people who are depressed, you know, and they're often in the mindset of like, well, my, you know, where's me? My world sucks. So who am I? I always ask them to go and do some volunteer work. And what that does is, yeah, it takes the attention off me, woe is me, puts it on service, and something just shifts within your mind when you do that. Well, you discover value and that you can make a difference in the life of another. So suddenly what was the woe is me depression, they recognize some sense of contribution, which is an increase in their asset of their own self-value. Beautiful. This has been so amazing. I've loved our conversation. Is there anything else that you want to share or any last parting words of wisdom or anything like that? No, it's been lovely to be with you. Obviously, this is the first time we've been together and uh, you're a sweetheart and obviously you're doing a lot of great work and I feel privileged to be on your show and I'm excited to see when it comes out and I hope we get some beautiful response. And all I would say is just care immensely and I love helping people and I hope that comes across in my words and my work and my demeanor. And I think that is, you know, parting words of wisdom is let's just be as a society much more caring and kind to one another. And it usually starts by being more caring and kind to ourselves. So that's what I would wish for the planet that we're currently on. Mm, Me too. You have shared so openly and honestly, and all of the work that you do is of service and so helpful for so many people around the world. I want to know how I and the listeners can give back to you. How can we serve you today? Just wire some of the money from the banks (laughs) that they rob. That's totally fine. A minimum? What's the minimum? Yeah, you know, if we could, I mean, it depends on the size of the bank. If we can creep into the seven figures. Great. Awesome. Done. Mint chalk chip (laughs) for life. No, I mean, listen, I get so much gratitude from the fact that people share my work. They go on my Instagram, they find a story, they share it with their loved ones. So, you know, and if people want to engage in my product, my course, although I don't know when this comes out, the course might be closed, but they could sign up for whenever it comes out again. Anything that I can do to be of service to people by virtue of the fact that they're engaging with me is of service to me. So yeah, just sing Peter Crone's name from the rooftops. And I mean, someone from Australia actually did a portrait. That was very sweet. They sent that recently. Yeah, it was really, actually really impressive. Yeah. But I don't need more portraits. Cash. Or, or ice cream, mint chocolate ice, ice cream, cream. <laughs> or sharing. Lots of sharing. Peter Crone is the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, just small <laughs> stuff. Keep it tell, humble. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, just before we go, tell us a little bit about the course that's coming out. What is it? What's involved? 
So it's called Free Your Mind. So it's all online streaming. There's three main components. One is called the insights, which is where I'm giving insight about how the brain works, the mind works, the ego, why do we suffer? I think there's about 17 videos in that. So there's a lot of content. You get to download PDFs and you go through the work with me, like I ask questions. So you look at your own life. And then there's guest sessions, which is really cool. I work with four people I'd never met before. They tell me what their problems are in the space of, I think the shortest is 30 minutes, the longest is maybe 50 minutes. I take them through this whole awakening process. So you get to be a fly on the wall and watch it and relate because we all resonate with the same thing. So that's super cool. And then you can buy the combination. And then there's another option to be part of a group conference call with me and whoever signs up, which is always fun. So yeah, free your mind. It's been awesome. The feedback has been incredible. It's truly life-changing. So it'll probably be out again, I don't know, towards the end of the year if people miss it this time, but they can always sign up for a waitlist. Yes, and we'll link to that in the show notes so everyone can go and check it out. Peter, this has been amazing. It's been so lovely to connect with you and to hear your wisdom. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for all the work that you do in the world. I'm so grateful that our paths have crossed. Likewise, my dear. Such a pleasure to be with you. And I'm excited to see where this goes and to be in touch in the future. So thanks for having me on. Wasn't that awesome? I loved this conversation. I loved getting to know Peter more. He dropped so many truth bombs and it was just so inspiring. So I hope you got a lot out of it. And if you did, please subscribe and leave me a review on iTunes or on your podcast app because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could potentially be the review of the week for next week and win one of my top favorite products. And speaking of review of the week, this week's review of the week is from Lindy H. And it's a five-star review titled Absolute Happiness. And Lindy says, this podcast is one of my absolute favorites. When I feel I need a little pick-me-up or grounding, I turn this potty on and instantly get a boost. Thank you, Melissa, for all that you do. Lindy, thank you so much for that beautiful review. And as a little thank you, I want to gift you one of my top favorite products. And this week, it is a water bottle and shower filter from Hydrogen Health. So how awesome is that? So leave me a review on iTunes and you could potentially win a Hydrogen Health water bottle and shower filter, a bottle of wild olive oil from the Wild Olive, some goodies from Organifi, or a pair of blue block, blue light blocking glasses from the Melissa range. How cool is that? Now, don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading what you get out of each episode. So please come and share it with me. And for everything that we mentioned in today's show, you can check out in the show notes. That's over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 371. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. You can take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. 